Hello and happy Saturday. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. On June 22nd, U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced that the Department of the Interior is starting an investigation into the system of boarding schools for indigenous students that was run by the U.S. government and religious institutions in the 19th and 20th centuries. In the words of a bill titled Truth and Healing Commission on Indian Boarding School Policy Act, which Holland introduced in the House in 2020, quote, The Indian boarding school policy was adopted by the United States government to strip American Indian and Alaska Native children of their indigenous identities, beliefs, and traditional languages to assimilate them into white American culture through federally funded Christian-run schools, which had the effect of cultural genocide. This announcement came not long after the announcement of a mass grave discovered at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, Canada. Canada's system of residential schools was extremely similar to the one in the United States. That discovery was announced in May, and the grave is believed to contain the remains of at least 215 children. Another discovery of more than 750 unmarked graves at the site of a former school in Saskatchewan was announced on June 24th, and a third discovery of 182 human remains in unmarked graves in British Columbia was announced on June 30th. We've talked about these systems of schools in both the U.S. and in Canada on a number of episodes of the show, most recently in our three-parter on Jim Thorpe. And given all of this recent news, we're re-releasing another episode that's related over the next two Saturdays. It is our two-parter on the Fort Shaw Indian School girls basketball team, which originally came out November 13th and 15th, 2017. And one correction here. When talking about the origins of basketball in this episode, we say that Springfield College, where the sport was developed, was in Connecticut. It was in Massachusetts. I have no explanation for this mistake. I made it. I typed a totally wrong word rather than typing the name of the Commonwealth where I live. Well, you know, we only type 10 words a week, so they all are perfect every time. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So keep that correction in mind. And here you go. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. From time to time, we get requests from listeners for an episode about some kind of sports history. That's true. And we, we do. I mean, we have episodes that are related to the Olympic Games and some that are on swimming and weightlifting and several different types of racing, including horses and speedboats and automobiles. We have not really talked a lot about team sports, which I think is what people are asking for when they ask for sports. Yes. Today's subject is the Fort Shaw Indian School girls basketball team. They became world champions in 1904, which is pretty early in the entire history of that sport. But the story also plays out right in the intersection of two other pretty big stories. There's the American Indian Boarding School Program in the United States and also the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. So we are going to tackle the story in two parts. In today's part one, we have the background on this boarding school system that the Fort Shaw School was part of, as well as how basketball came to and flourished at the school And then in part two, we will talk about how the team became world champions while they were there. And as a note at the beginning, 
We're going to be talking about a lot of intentional efforts to, quote, Americanize indigenous children. And this is a weird word because the word American can encompass a whole diversity of races and ethnicities and cultures and religions. But these efforts to Americanize Native children, that was really only about one type of American, one that was white, Christian, and English-speaking. So we're, we know that American means a lot of things besides that. But in this context, that's what it was really about. And also, if it's not obvious at this point, we're going to be talking about some pretty abhorrent views in this episode. Yeah. And the next one. <laughs> yeah, so when we use the word Americanize in this context, know that we are referring to that usage at the time, someone else's very specific, very narrow view of that. Yes. Uh, Fort Shaw, Montana began its life in June of 1867 as an outpost, which was called Camp Reynolds. And that was on land that the United States had acquired from France through the Louisiana Purchase, which of course took place in 1803. The following month, it was renamed Fort Shaw Military Reservation. It remained in operation as a fort until 1891. The fort served to protect white travelers and traders, and the troops garrisoned there were an active fighting force in the United States' ongoing wars against the region's native nations and tribes. Yeah, those wars had really gone on for centuries, and this is playing out toward the end of those centuries of active warfare. Also, after the major removals of indigenous tribes from their home territories, like, the bulk of that had happened, but it was still ongoing, so this is toward the end of that phase of history, but still things related to it were going on. So about a year after the fort ceased military operations, the Office of Indian Affairs converted it into a government boarding school for Native American children. The Fort Shaw Indian School became part of the nation's network of federal off-reservation boarding schools that were meant to Americanize the indigenous population. The flagship of this system was Pennsylvania's Carlisle Indian School, which was established in 1879. Its founder, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Henry Pratt, believed that Native Americans would become extinct if they didn't immediately conform to white culture. By forcing them to do so, he thought he would save the indigenous population. This is often summed up as, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. He's obviously not the only person who thought this. There were other policymakers who were of the same mindset. Pratt spoke at length about this whole idea a little later on in his career at the 19th Annual Conference of Charities and Correction, and he gave an address that began, quote, a great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one, and that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Although Carlisle was the most well-known of these off-reservation boarding schools, it wasn't the first or only such effort. Mission schools and other religious efforts go back almost to the beginning of European colonization in North America. And we've talked about some of these in past podcasts, including the Harvard Indian School in Massachusetts and the Foreign Mission School in Connecticut. And we'll link to both of those episodes in the show notes. Church efforts to educate the indigenous population, these earlier schools, a lot of the time were at least at first more about spreading Christianity than about straight-out cultural assimilation. But that started to shift in the early 19th century. 
1819, Congress passed the Civilization Fund Act, and this act set aside funding for missionary societies to run, quote, civilizing schools for Native Americans. Into the end of the 19th century, hundreds of boarding and day schools were built near and on reservation land, and they had the dual mission of educating and so-called civilizing the Native students. The government-run off-reservation boarding schools, like the ones at Carlisle and Fort Shaw, joined this extensive network of boarding and day schools. Between 1880 and 1902, the federal government built about 25 boarding schools that were physically removed from their students' reservations, sometimes by hundreds of miles. And collectively, all these boarding and day schools, both on and off reservations, had the same goal, to remove all traces of indigenous culture from the native population and replace it with that which was considered appropriately, quote, American. To do this, the off-reservation boarding schools removed Native children from their homes, families, tribes, and cultures for periods of months or years. It's just too far away a lot of the time for people to go home even for breaks. Students were held to really strict scheduling and military-style discipline. Classes were taught only in English, and children who didn't already have an English name were given one and called by that instead. Indigenous languages and religious practices were all forbidden, and punishments for breaking those rules were harsh and even abusive. The uniforms, meals, lessons, and recreation were all meant to Americanize the students' dress, speech, demeanor, and beliefs. At many of the schools, teachers and administrators told the students that their native beliefs and ways of life were wrong and backward and evil and even savage. This was such an explicit effort. Like at Carlisle, they even took before and after pictures. After students arrived at school, they would take before pictures of people in their own traditional dress that they had come to the school in and then like give them haircuts and dress them in other clothes and take pictures afterward. Most schools divided their class time between academic and vocational instruction under the idea that students would graduate knowing some kind of productive trade. So for the 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 boys that might be things like blacksmithing and farming for girls the trade was often sewing or domestic work some schools even hired out their students labor while they were attending school but even so the graduation rates were actually really low and there were a lot of limits to the so-called assimilation that the schools were enforcing even though the students were expected to talk dress act and work like white people Once they graduated or otherwise left the school, they were still considered to be Native American. They were still subject to the same segregation and discrimination as the rest of the indigenous population. In addition to all of that, conditions at many of these schools were very poor, and hundreds of students died of disease and malnutrition, as well as of injury or exposure after running away from the school. There have also been numerous reports of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse taking place at the schools over the decades. Sometimes Native parents really had no other choice as to whether to send their children to these boarding schools. In some cases, there just wasn't another option available for getting an education, or life was so difficult on the reservation that it seemed like the choice was between boarding school and starvation. It was obviously not really a choice, Some government Indian agents took children by force or strongly pressured parents to send their children to boarding school. 
This was especially true when it came to the leaders of tribes that had recently been at war with the United States. Their children were aggressively recruited, sometimes taken without their consent, and sent to far-off boarding schools almost as hostages. Simultaneously, though, there were families who sent their children voluntarily, hoping that if they received an education at a government school, learning English and the ways of white society, they might return home to better advocate for their own people. This was especially true when it came to schools that had better reputations in terms of how the students were treated or weren't so far away from the rest of the community. Somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000 children went to federal off-reservation boarding schools from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. But at the same time, roughly 100,000 Native Americans went to school through similar Americanization efforts at on-reservation boarding schools and day schools. So during these decades, the Native children who were receiving some kind of formal education were overwhelmingly doing so at a program that was meant to Christianize and, quote, Americanize them. The United States, uh, we should mention, was not the only nation to have schools and other programs like this. Canada, for example, had a very similar system of residential schools that began operating in about 1880, and the last of those actually closed in 1996. In Australia, so many indigenous children and children of aboriginal descent were forcibly removed from their families that they became known as the Stolen Generations. There's actually a pretty old podcast about that back in the archive. And we've gotten a number of requests related uh, to this in some way over the years. We have gotten approximately an equal number of requests for the residential school program in Canada and about specifically Carlisle School in the United States. But like Carlisle, as we've just said, was part of a much, much bigger system. So after the break, we're going to talk more about Fort Shaw Indian School specifically and how it wound up starting a basketball program. Fort Shaw Indian School was centrally located among 11 different reservations that were scattered across four states. This included Colville, Spokane, and Coeur d'Alene in eastern Washington, Fort Hall in Idaho, Wind River in Wyoming, and Blackfeet, Flathead, Fort Belknap, Fort Peck, Crow, and Northern Cheyenne in Montana. Even though Fort Shaw was roughly central to all of these different reservations, the closest ones were still more than 100 miles away. Fort Shaw was actually a replacement for another school, a government-run day school on Fort Peck Indian Reservation, which burned down in 1892. The federal government looked to recently vacated Fort Shaw because it would be easy and inexpensive to turn it into a school. The officers' quarters became housing for faculty and staff. The barracks were student housing. And since it had been a military base, it already had other necessities like a mess hall, a chapel, a laundry, and a hospital. Another bonus from the government's point of view was that long hundred-plus mile journey home. Some of them were from much farther away than 100 miles. The school was far enough away from all of the reservations that its students came from that, in theory, it would discourage students to visit home. It would discourage family to come and visit students, both of which the administrators thought might slow down the students' assimilation or cause students to, quote, relapse into their native ways. They also believed that this distance would deter students from trying to run away. This was not entirely true, 
children definitely tried to and did run away from Fort Shaw. After its conversion into a school, Fort Shaw reopened on December 27, 1892, for students ages 5 to 18. Its students included members of numerous tribes and nations, including the Blackfeet, Chippewa Cree, Crow, Northern Cheyenne, Shoshone, Grovon, Assiniboine, and Sioux. Many were of multi-tribal descent, and many had one white parent. Although only some of the students spoke English upon arrival at the school, nearly all of them spoke more than one indigenous language. As we said at the top of the show, a core element of Fort Shaw Indian School's purpose was to remove students from their own cultural beliefs and practices and instead assimilate them into white society. So this included English and cultural instruction, along with some academic and vocational classes, plus music, theater, and physical education. A lot of the youngest students spent their first couple of years learning English and white cultural norms before focusing on any academic or vocational study. Vocational classes weren't just about teaching the children useful skills that could help them earn a living once they graduated. They were also about actually keeping the school running. The children's labor at Fort Shaw included raising the vegetables and livestock that provided food and milk for the school, sewing all of the school uniforms and laundering and mending them. They also made items that were sold to earn money for the school. Girls learned embroidery and lace making, while boys learned things like blacksmithing, furniture making, and general carpentry. Their PE courses were also separated by gender. The boys got to play team sports along with doing track and field. The girls mainly had what was called physical culture. This was sort of a cross between a health class, calisthenics, and European-style gymnastics that was popular at the time. Josephine Langley, known as Josie, was hired as an, quote, Indian assistant, along with two other young women from the Blackfeet Reservation in 1893. Josie wanted to be a teacher, and she hoped that by taking this job as an assistant, she would be able to work her way up the ladder. She had probably learned to play basketball while studying at Carlisle Indian School, and she introduced the sport at Fort Shaw around 1896, at first playing with a soccer ball and makeshift baskets until the school eventually approved the purchase of regulation equipment. Games were played in the Army base's old dance hall, which had a packed dirt floor and was easily big enough to accommodate the court and the players. Basketball, which was actually two words at this point, was not just new to Fort Shaw Indian School. James Naismith had developed the sport only about five years before its introduction there. He had developed it at Springfield College in Connecticut, which was also known as the International YMCA Training School. He had been looking for a team sport that could be played indoors, particularly during the winter months, when the college's football team's regiment of calisthenics, marching, and weight training was just not sufficient to keep up their physique. Around the turn of the 20th century, football was extremely violent. Teams basically faced off against each other in a wedge formation, and they kind of threw themselves at each other full force. It was not at all something that could be played in a confined space on an indoor surface without risking even more injuries than were already happening during regular play. So in creating basketball, Naismith was trying to invent a team sport that was fast-paced and vigorous but did not involve large young men hurling themselves into one another as hard as possible. That's kind of a side note here. The football that Naismith was trying to replace was also really new. 
The first college football game is generally marked as happening between Princeton and Rutgers on November 6th of 1869, although that initial game was closer to soccer than to American football as we know it today. This rugby-soccer hybrid of American football grew up over the next decade or so, and the Carlisle Indian School football team, which was founded in 1893, played a big role in the evolution of that sport. On average, the Carlisle football players were much smaller than the players on the teams that they played against, and they came up with a ton of strategic tricks to get around this disadvantage. If there wasn't a specific rule against it, they would try it. There are still American football rules today that came about as the Intercollegiate Football Rules Committee outlawed Carlisle strategies in between seasons. I'm just going to continue with this digression for a moment to say that I I do not care about football as a sport. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of, you know, social and economic and medical and political issues around football that I care a lot about, but like it's I it, it would take a lot to make me sit down and watch a football game all the way through. Uh, even so, this whole story of the Carlisle Indian School football team is fascinating, and I want to do an episode about it one day. Um, Jim Thorpe, whose name in the Fox language translated to Bright Path, was the first Native American to win a gold medal at the Olympics for the United States. He was one of the players. And their strategies and the, the ways that they uh, bent every rule if it wasn't specifically outlawed, their coach, Pop Warner, would would try it. So, like, the whole story is just fascinating and bizarre and has stuff in it like the Carlisle team sewing these leather football-shaped patches on their uniforms to trick Harvard into thinking they all had the ball. <laughs> and then Harvard retaliating by painting all of the balls maroon. It's... It is a great story, and it it's uh, one of the few other things about team sports I might interest myself enough in doing <laughs> podcast on it sometime later. I like a little subversion through sewing. That makes it super fun. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> um it's a it's fascinating. Anyway, so Naismith's original game of basketball to get back to basketball uh, had thirteen rules. We're not going to read them all, but they included that the ball could be thrown or batted with one or both hands, but not with a fist. Shouldering, holding, pushing, tripping, and striking opponents were all fouls, as was hitting the ball with a fist. The game was played in two 15-minute halves with a five-minute rest, but otherwise the clock did not stop during play. So it was a very fast-paced game, not a lot of stopping, a pretty low scoring compared to today. Although it wasn't listed in the 13 original rules, the game started with a jump ball or a tip-off at center court, and both teams returned to center court for another jump ball after baskets were scored. Soon after Naismith drafted the first set of rules, women's colleges in the Northeast started taking up basketball as well. Senda Berenson of Smith College released an adapted rule set for women in 1892. In 1896, she headed up a committee to create an even further modified set of rules for girls, which made the game so much easier and less intense that a lot of programs, especially west of the Mississippi, just ignored them and had the girls play by what were called the, quote, boys' rules. Yeah, especially for... Uh, girls' teams that had already been playing by the same rules as everyone else, uh, they were like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so this basketball program at Fort Shaw was actually the first basketball program organized in the state of Montana. 
it immediately became immensely popular among the girls at the school. Physical games played in teams were already a really important element of pretty much all of their indigenous cultures. Basketball also had some similarities to a number of Native girls' games. These included double ball, which used a pair of balls tethered together and then tossed from a stick, which was exclusively a women's sport among most of the Plains tribes. There was another game called shinny, which was a lot like field hockey and used curved sticks, which was generally a women's rule or a women's game as well. Uh, Some tribes also had versions of lacrosse that were played by women. Basically, there were a lot of team sports with balls specifically played by women among a lot of different indigenous cultures. Basketball was also a lot more fun and physically active than physical culture class. Uh, And it was the one time of day when students could really shed some of the school's cultural expectations. They could participate in unladylike behavior like running and jumping with abandon. Although the boys at the school had shown an initial interest in basketball as well, soon the girls were outperforming them on the court and their interest waned. They also had plenty of other team sports to choose from, whereas the girls did not. Because there was no other basketball program in Montana at the time, for the first few years of basketball at Fort Shaw Indian School, all of the games were intramural scrimmage matches. Even so, they were as popular with the local community as they were with the girls at the school. At an end-of-year ceremony game in 1897, they did an intramural demonstration that brought in 300 spectators to watch. In 1898, Fred C. Campbell became superintendent of Fort Shaw, and he seemed to have had a genuine interest in making things better for the school, improving the school's image and that of his students. And he also wanted the community to begin seeing those students in a different light. Racism against Native Americans was endemic and severe, and Campbell recognized that all this work they were doing to, quote, assimilate the students was not really going to be effective if once those students graduated from the school, they were still shunned from white society. So he started inviting people from the community to the school and taking students out into the community to try to basically get everyone used to each other, hopefully change some hearts and minds within the community. So a natural way to do this was by hosting basketball games. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But first, we are going to pause and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. In addition to being the superintendent of the school, Fred Campbell had been an athlete himself. Some sources actually credit him with being the one who introduced basketball at Fort Shaw, but it was definitely played there for a couple of years before he became superintendent. From his own firsthand experience, he thought athletics were a good way to build a person's self-esteem and sense of worth on top of helping to develop a strong and healthy body. So he focused on improving and building up all the school's athletics teams, but it was really the girls' basketball team that he saw as having the most promise for bringing good publicity to the school and its students. Basketball had barely made its way into Montana at this point. There were so few other teams to play against that the Fort Shaw girls' team's first game against another school was actually against a boys' team, and that team was from Great Falls. Then, Campbell organized another girls' team in Sun River, which was not far away, so the Fort Shaw team would have someone else to play. When it was time for games, he would bring the Sun River team in by wagon. Fort Shaw defeated Sun River easily every time. Of course, more 
more schools, more other programs started having basketball teams. But to play against those other teams, the Fort Shaw team had to start traveling farther and farther away. In late 1902, they traveled to Butte, Montana by wagon and then train, where they, de- where they defeated the Butte High team 15-9. to the next day, they traveled to Helena, again by train, and this time they were defeated 15-6. to Again, I will point out how much lower these scores are than what we would normally see in a basketball game today. There's only one, of di- one digit instead of three. <laughs> I think that um, original basketball is a little more my taste maybe than current basketball. Because that is one of my things of, like, you could just kind of watch the last bit because there's so much scoring before that. <laughs> yeah. Which is not to in any way throw shade at basketball. If you love it, that's cool. That's just always been my thing of, like, I could come in for the last 10 minutes, right? Um, that's when it's really a nail-biter. So after that loss, though, at Helena, Campbell started refining the girls' positions on the team. He realized that Fort Shaw had lost the ball to Helena in more than half of the jump balls at center court. So he moved Nettie Worth, who wasn't the tallest on the team, but had a really incredible vertical jump, to center. Nettie and her sister Lizzie were Assiniboine and had been among Fort Shaw's first students when it opened. This change was not quite enough to help Fort Shaw defeat Butte Parochial School in the next game they played. They lost that one 15-6. So Campbell made another switch. He left Nettie Worth as center, and he made Minnie Burton and Inna Sansiver forwards. Many was a member of the Lemhi Shoshone Nation, which was not actually in favor of sending children away to government boarding schools. But Many's father worked as a translator, and he thought that she could benefit from getting an English education. Emma Sansiver and her siblings were actually Métis of French-Canadian and Chippewa Cree descent. They were listed in their school records as Sioux because uh, their particular people were essentially landless in the United States. They were not part of a federally recognized tribe. Some of the people at the mission school that they had attended previously falsified their tribal affiliation to be able to get them into the school, which, like, we talked previously about how there were all kinds of reasons for, for children to go to these schools, and this was a case where Emma and her siblings were in dire financial straits. And so at the, the, the people who made this change to their tribal affiliation were doing what they thought was best for them. So this combination of uh, girls in positions that Campbell came up with became a winning one for Fort Shaw. Their next game was against a college team, Montana State University in Missoula, now known as the University of Montana. Fort Shaw won 19-9, and from there, they were undefeated for the rest of the season, playing at least six more games, including against another college team, the Montana Agricultural College Farmettes, and resounding wins in rematches against both Helena High School, which was a 28-10 victory, and Butte Parochial, which was an 18-8 score. These games were not all on the road. The school, while it had that large dance hall that was great for their own scrimmages and practices, they didn't really have a large enough space to accommodate the crowds who started wanting to see the games. So they started using Luther Hall in Great Falls, Montana, as their home game court. Luther Hall was a ballroom that was big enough for the playing area and hundreds of spectators. Great Falls is also about 25 miles away from the school, and since travel to and from there had to happen by wagon, the team and their uh, their chaperones and, and coach wound up staying at a hotel, which was a treat for most of them. 
Over the course of a few games, Great Falls, Montana, started to think of the Fort Shaw team as their own home team. Although game coverage in the local paper still drifted into casual racism, especially in descriptions of the girls' appearances and their, quote, savage wins, it started to carry a little bit of a tone of local pride and to focus more on the players' other accomplishments at school rather than the fact that they were, quote, Indian. Yeah, they didn't they didn't disguise the girls' uh, cultural heritage, but it stopped being written about as though it were a, a taboo or a, a something to judge about them. In the end of the 1902-1903 season, the Fort Shaw team had a record of nine wins and two losses. The game of basketball was still so new to the state of Montana that there weren't official rankings or playoffs, but nevertheless, the Fort Shaw team was regarded as the state champions. Minnie Burton had become so popular, especially for her scoring ability, that spectators' chant whenever they were playing was, shoot, Minnie, shoot. The basketball games also gave the school an opportunity to show off some other talents. The band and the mandolin orchestra provided the before game and halftime entertainment. Sometimes after the games, the court was turned back into a dance floor where the girls showed off their skills in ballroom dancing. All of this also brought in lots of coverage from the local press. Of course, uh, racism and prejudice still existed, but the community started to see these students as talented and capable rather than as uneducable troublemakers. In 1903, S.M. McGowan contacted Fred Campbell with an intriguing invitation. McGowan had previously been superintendent of the Chilico Indian School, but he had recently moved into a new role— director of the model Indian school that was being created for the St. Louis World's Fair. McGowan asked Campbell to select some of Fort Shaw's best students to participate in the model school, which was going to run from June 1st to November 1st, 1904. And Campbell agreed. Uh, But that becomes a whole other story. So we're going to talk about what this agreement meant for the basketball team and how it led to their becoming world champions in part two of this podcast. I'm excited for part two. Me too. Uh, It's a really fun story. You don't, I mean, uh, when you think about this being a completely new sport, really, for people, and how it it completely shifted perceptions, I have a new appreciation for basketball. I really admire uh, the girls and young women who played on this team. We're going to get to talk more about them next time, too. Yay! Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. (laughs) 